Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And uh, believe it or not, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for the past two years. Uh, we started in August of 20, whatever, whatever it was, 2020 is when we started. Um, and, and working through this book, we have seen many things. We began in chapter 1 with Jesus risen from the dead and uh, him talking with his disciples and then ascending up into heaven. And no sooner did he ascend up, um, but then a, a few days later, his spirit then came down. And on the day of Pentecost, bringing thousands of people to the point of repentance and faith in Christ. It was in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and by chapter 4, up to 5,000 believers in Christ. And we saw the early church flourish, uh, especially in their love for one another and just their, their willingness to be together and the desire to be around God's Word and praying. And the healthy church it was, and yet there was some infighting in chapter 6. And we saw the apostles deal with that and deal with that well We've seen the church face persecution in chapter 7 when Stephen stood up and preached Jesus and was stoned to death. And as a result of that, the gospel went out from Jerusalem and it first um, went up to Judea, first went up to Samaria with Philip going and preaching there. And then it went down to Judea in Acts chapter 8. It it speaks about that. In Acts chapter 9, we saw Saul of Tarsus going to Damascus to imprison and enslave Christians and bring them bound even back to Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus, the great enemy of the church, then was converted and became a great advocate for the gospel of Christ. We saw Peter in chapter 10 take the gospel to the house of Cornelius, the first Gentile really convert with with apostolic sanction that, yes, the, the gospel is now opened up to Gentiles. And we saw in chapter 11 the budding of that great church in Antioch, that by Acts chapter 13 they had a vision for the world in which they sent out Paul and Barnabas for the work to which God had called them. And Paul went out and traveled on three separate journeys, going out thousands of miles, taking the gospel to southern Galatia and to Asia and to Macedonia and Achaia. And through all those missionary journeys we saw Paul, we saw God doing much in the early church taking the good news of Jesus Christ, dead and yet risen from the dead, taken from a few disciples in Jerusalem to tens of thousands of people all across the known world. And what is a joy has been our journey, I trust, for you, has been to me. It was interesting that I was uh, talking up here with the children after service last week about the children's notes. I said, uh, guys, how long do you think we're going to be in the book of Acts more and um, they kind of had some questions. I think you're going to graduate from high school before we get out of the book of Acts. And I said, no, no, no. I said, we're, we're hopefully going to be finishing by the, the spring. And there was one child who said, oh, darn, I love the book of Acts. So I was super encouraged by that. But I trust that you've been encouraged by this book and that you um, just have a greater heart than to share the gospel of Christ. After all, right, this on the, on the screen, be my witnesses. So what Jesus said his disciples would be, and that's what they were. And that's what Jesus is calling every single one of us to be, is his witnesses. Speaking about Jesus, what we have known, what we've experienced in and of ourselves. Well, we're coming to the final movement of the book. When the Apostle Paul was arrested, tried before a Roman audience on a handful of occasions, and then sent to Rome as a prisoner to be tried by Caesar Now, one of the things that we easily forget 
in, in our, our working the way through the book of Acts is who actually wrote Re- Acts. Luke wrote Acts, the same one who wrote the, the gospel that we call Luke. And the similarities between these two books is, is something really I think we should take note of because especially this last section ends like the gospel of Luke ends. With both Luke and the gospel, with both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we, we see this climax of sorts in Jerusalem. It's where Jesus was, was tried by the law and was eventually crucified. It's where Paul, Jerusalem is where Paul in Acts is tried in a court of law and he's sent off to Rome. And it's no accident, I think, that the books end in Jerusalem. Well, Acts really ends in, in Rome, but it sort of has this big climax in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and you read just through from 951 and following, there were times where he bore no fruit, even it's 953, he bore no fruit in Samaria because he had to get to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was going because he had an appointment there on the cross in Jerusalem where he'd be taken up. And the parallel statement in Acts comes in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and then to go to Jerusalem. And then he adds, if then, possibly he's going to go to Rome. But from that point on, from Acts chapter 19, verse 21, you see Paul heading to Jerusalem. And even those in Tyre told him, no, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. Even those in Caesarea told him, no, go to Jerusalem. But he said in chapter 21 and verse 13, he said, no, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's ready to die. Going to Jerusalem is what he was longing to do. And, and once in the city of Jerusalem, we see Paul experience the same things that Jesus did. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he had major conflicts with the Pharisees and Sadducees almost right away. And back and forth it went until he was eventually um, handed over to the Gentiles. And so likewise, Apostle Paul, when, when he came into Jerusalem, he was accused by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. And when Jesus had been in Jerusalem a few days, he was misunderstood, taken into Roman custody. And Paul had been in Jerusalem a few days, he too was misunderstood, taken into Roman custody. Jesus was physically beaten for his crimes. Paul was beaten for his crimes. Jesus stood before Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the Roman authorities of the day. Paul stood before Felix and Festus and Herod Agrippa II, Roman authorities as well. And neither Herod Antipas nor Pontius Pilate found anything that Jesus was guilty of. And neither did Felix or Festus or Herod Agrippa find anything that Paul was guilty of either. The Jewish crowds were presented with Jesus. And they said, what should we do with him? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. And when Paul was before the Jewish crowds, they shouted, away with him. Jesus, of course, was put to death by the Romans. And Paul then was sent to Rome, where tradition has it he was beheaded. Now, in mentioning these similarities, I do not believe it's an accident. I do not believe that just some, some happenstance of, of literature. I believe Luke was intentional to make the parallel account of what Paul experienced in coming to Jerusalem the same as what Jesus encountered. See, because Luke could have put his book together however he wanted. Um, he could have left out all of Paul's conflicts in Jerusalem. He could have left out, if you're going back, much of what Paul did. He could have followed Barnabas on all of Barnabas's journeys. Or he could have stayed in Jerusalem and focused on James and, and the church in Jerusalem, what the church in Jerusalem was doing. He could have spent more time in his pages on any of the church he planted. Like I think about Corinth and Ephesus. 
He spent 18 months in Corinth. And what we know from what Luke wrote about Corinth is that he spent 18 months in Corinth seeing many people come to faith in Christ. And in Ephesus, he was three years in Ephesus. We get one chapter, Acts chapter 19, all about Ephesus. And then we hear Paul giving his final exhortation to the elders at Ephesus. But that's really like one, just a couple pages of just an overarching summary. He could have delved deep into what three years were about teaching the disciples. Like, what did he teach? What was systematically was he going through? What was his methods? How was the church growing? Who were the new converts there? He could have done that. But instead, under divine inspiration, Luke focuses attention upon Paul and his journeys in a big part and then lands right here in Jerusalem with this unjust suffering that he experienced. Now, one of the constant themes through Acts has been the sufferings of the followers of Jesus. Just think about suffering in Acts. Peter and John suffered much in the hands of the religious authorities. They arrested them and they beat them. That brought them into jail, commanded them to preach no more in the name of Jesus. Stephen was stoned to death because he preached Jesus to the Jews in Jerusalem. Herod, the brother of John, was killed under the sword by the hand of Herod Agrippa I. Paul was run out of town on a number of occasions, being imprisoned in Philippi, stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. And when Paul described the life of a follower of Christ to the new converts in southern Galatia. He said this, Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Like the theme of suffering is predominant in the book of Acts. This last section of the book of Acts, we see Paul in his own tribulation, his last days. We see him taken in captivity, appearing before the Roman authorities of the day. And Luke goes into great detail about the trials of Paul. In fact, we're going to see Paul just five separate times on trial before various sorts of people. He's declared innocent often. Uh, Sir William Ramsey in his commentary said, It's beyond doubt that on our hypothesis, the amount of space assigned to Paul's imprisonment and successive examinations marks as the most important part of the book in the author's estimation. So if you've liked the book up to this point, you're going to love the book. This is the most important point of what uh, Luke has been getting at. So let's read here from Acts chapter 20, verse 27 and following. And this is the most important part about Paul even being on trial, what it means to be a believer, what it means to suffer. Let's read our text. Our our text is Acts 21, 27 through 40. When seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, cried out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the steps, motioning with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then that's for next week, what we'll we'll get at 22 and following as he defends himself before the people. Well, my message this morning is entitled, Suffering Like Jesus, because that's what Paul experienced in Jerusalem. He experienced much the same things that Jesus did, false accusations, physical assault, unjust imprisonment. And really, the application for us this morning isn't so much that we as believers in Christ will will suffer exactly like Jesus, as, as Paul did. I mean, after all, there are many disciples who are following Christ around the time of Paul um, who weren't in prison and beaten like Paul. Uh, like, like take Luke, the author of the book, for example. He, he wasn't imprisoned. He wasn't beaten for his faith as well. Paul became, in, in sense, one sense, the figurehead. Just like Jesus is our figurehead. He is the one who died for us. Upon the cross, he died so that we might have not have to. And Paul, in some regards, becomes the, the figurehead, not, not in the sense that his, his suffering then becomes meritorious to us, like, like Christ did, but, but more like when you're going to get at somebody, when you're going to go at a crowd, you get the leader. Right? You, you go after the leader. If you get the leader, then you get everyone else. And they were going after the leader who was, who was Paul. And so the application isn't so much that we will suffer like Jesus, But the application for this morning is that we, as believers in Christ, may indeed well suffer. And the sufferings of Paul simply brings this out for us. And as Darren read this morning in 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul is pleading to his his, uh, young protege in the faith, Timothy. He says, therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed about Jesus, that he's the one that we follow, who was actually beaten, despised, crushed, and ruined upon the cross. But then again, he rose from the dead that we believe in. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of, of Jesus, nor of me as prisoner. Right? Don't be ashamed of my suffering. We ought not to be ashamed of, the Paul, of Paul's suffering. We ought not to be ashamed of any of the suffering in the book of Acts. Right? Because the Christian life isn't one of triumphalism. The, the Christian life is one of humility and brokenness. And yet then God exalts us. God tells us in 1 Timothy verse 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It's in our humility, it's in our suffering, and our being crushed, that God someday will exalt us. So Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but he says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And to the extent that suffering comes to us, you need to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So let's look at my first point this morning as we see Paul suffering like Jesus. And there'll be some applications for us for sure. But first we see in verse 27, we see false accusations. Verse 27 begins this this way. When the seven days were almost completed. 
Now, these words bring us back to the previous passage. We looked at this last week, the the seven days. That is the the seven days of purification. If you remember, James had told Paul about how four men had taken a Nazarite vow. And during this vow, they had kept away from any alcohol. They'd been kept away from dead bodies. They'd kept away from scissors cutting their hair. And they're awaiting fulfillment of their vow when they would cut their hair and throw it in with the sacrifices, the the few lambs that they would have and and a ram and and Paul, or James counseled Paul in order to make peace with the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem. Right? It's just involve yourself in this vow. There's nothing wrong. You can do this vow. Join with them and pay their expenses. And the idea is that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem would, would see what Paul was doing and see that, yes, he didn't deny the law of Moses. But he's willing to engage with the law. He's willing to join in this Nazarite vow. From best that we can tell, he did pacify the Jewish believers in the city, but he didn't pacify the unbelieving Jews, for they stirred up the whole crowds against Paul after this days of purification were almost completed. Verse 27, And when the days, seven days were almost completed, there's the context, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against this people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Two accusations came against Paul, and they both were false. The first accusation was he taught against Moses and the temple. Teaching Moses is bad, teaching, teaching this temple is bad. And second, he defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the the temple area. And these were just patently false accusations. I mean, you think about it. Here was Paul in the temple submitting himself to the law of Moses with this Nazarite sacrifice at the very same time that they claimed that he was accused of speaking against the law. He was submitting himself to the law and yet at the very same time being accused of denying the law. As, as they say sometimes, you can't make this stuff up. Howard Marshall writes in his commentary, it's ironical that this should have been the charge against Paul at a time when he himself was undergoing purification so that he would not defile the very temple that they were claiming he was speaking against. Blatantly false. Now, to be fair, right, there was a kernel of truth to this. Right? For Paul had preached and taught that one doesn't become righteous through keeping the law. And we can learn this through his other writings. And what what he wrote in all of his epistles, we could apply to some of the theology that he taught that some of these people heard that then they insinuated that he spoke against the law of Moses and against the temple. But we read in Romans 3.23, Paul speaks clearly about the uselessness of law-keeping. He says, By the works of a law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You cannot... Make your way to God. You cannot be justified before God by keeping the law. And, and even for us at church, right? You, you can't be justified by, to, before God by reading your Bible and praying every day. By attending church and giving yourself sacrificially to the works of the church. And all those things are wonderful things, but they don't justify you before God. The only thing that justifies you before God is faith in Jesus Christ. Dead, buried, risen from the dead. The one who's, who, who lives again, right? So we, we live again through faith in Him. That's the only way to be justified, not through the works of a law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and that's what Paul taught. 
That's why they said, well, he's teaching against the law. Basically, he's teaching the gospel. He's teaching the truth. And it's always, it's never been by the law that you're going to be made right. And further, he taught in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that the real temple isn't the physical stones of Jerusalem any longer. Rather, it's the church. 1 Corinthians 13, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So in other words, right, taking the church and saying the church is the new temple, they're saying he's speaking against the temple. Well, he was there in the temple not wanting to defile the temple, but yet he taught something else, is that we the church are the temple of God. What a marvelous thing that is. And there's a kernel of truth in the accusation against Paul, but in the context of this accusation, this accusation is clearly false. Then regarding the second accusation, there was zero truth in that at all. Paul had been accused of bringing a Gentile man into the temple area. Now, all this came about because he had some Jews from Asia, and one of the prominent towns in Asia is Ephesus, and there was this Jew from Ephesus, there's a Gentile from Ephesus, his name was Trophimus, and apparently these Jews from Asia recognized this man, and so they knew this man, they knew that he was not a Jewish man, and he was associating with Paul, and he was associating with Paul outside the temple, and they just assumed that he brought him into the temple verse 29 explains that, right? They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. But just this supposition becomes this false accusation. Paul would never have done such a thing as this. He knew what a stench such an action would have been to the Jews, to the very people he's trying to pacify by being in the temple in the first place. And also, not only would Paul never do this, no Gentile would ever think of entering the sacred temple courts. I mean, there was the the outer court, that's the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were allowed to go, but they're not permitted to go into the, the court of Israel, the court of the Jews. Josephus, who lived during the days of Jesus, um, living afterwards just a little bit, he wrote of the, the stone wall that formed the partition between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Israel. And Josephus said, there are many signs written in Greek and Latin which forbade any foreigner to enter into that place under the pain of death. Archaeologists have confirmed this. Some uh, signs have been found in the temple area, one in 1871 and 1934. This is common knowledge. Here's, here's one of those signs, and it's written there in Greek. Uh, let me translate this for you. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's what that sign says, right, just right there. And it, we even have another archaeological sign apart from just even the literature from Josephus. And with such warning, right, if you're a Gentile walking in there and you see this sign that says, don't go past this area, if you're a Gentile and you will have no one to blame but yourself for your death, yeah, I don't think I don't think a Gentile would go. I mean, it'd be similar for you to climb over that fence. Here's a, a sign in in Israel. I, I believe it's the Golan Heights. I'm not exactly sure where, um, where where some enemies of Israel have laid some landmines, and the sign says "Danger Mines," and I'm sure it says the same thing in um, Hebrew and Arabic. I, I don't know Arabic. I could probably look up some of the Hebrew there, but it says "Don't go there." <laughs> There are mines in this region. If you step there, you have only to blame yourself for your death or your, your torn off limbs. Yet the Apostle Paul was accused of this very same thing 
Then he brought a Gentile right across over the fence into the landmine area. He never would have done that. But that, that's what suffering like Jesus is all about, false accusations. Jesus was falsely accused often. In fact, at one of his trials, Matthew 26 says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that might put him to death. They were seeking false testimony, seeking false accusations to be able to find something that's going to stick to be able to put him to death. And, and many false witnesses came forward, but, but none of their accusations stuck until two came up and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They said, Jesus, what do you say about that? And he was quiet, and that was a, enough of a truth, of a kernel of what Jesus had said, right? He wasn't talking about the physical temple he's going to rebuild in three days. He's talking about his own temple. So, you crucify me in three days, I'm going to build it again, I'm going to rise again from the dead, which again he did do, that's our hope, as Christians. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. But these words were too blasphemous for the religious leaders. Might that you think that you can destroy the temple and build it in three days? Ha! No way, Jesus. And, and furthermore, right, he was suffering then, false accusations. And when suffering upon the cross, the false accusations came Luke twenty three thirty five. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the chosen one, like if he really is, almost as if like okay, you you say you're not, you're you're not right. And the fact that you don't save yourself demonstrates you're not that way. The soldiers mocked him, saying, "If you are the King of the Jews, save yourselves. Save yourself." Misunderstood and mocked. And by the way, this is the lot of all all Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be misunderstood. You will be. You'll be mocked. You'll be falsely accused. This is the nature of the gospel. I mean, when the world sees our belief in this man who died and was buried and was really dead and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, the world looks at that and says, that is foolish. But to those who are being saved, that very message is the power of God. But, but they look at us and they wonder at us. They say, you really believe that? And they misunderstand and they mock us. I remember when I was working in the computer world, a, a man would mock me, comparing me to the televangelists. Steve, what do you do? Right, because I was just starting the church. I was working full time and I was preaching as well. He said, what do you do? He just give me money, give me money. <laughs> right? He's like, That's the, he mocked me like that. That was his vision of what I was as a pastor. Like someone who's just looking for money and handouts so I can live the easy life. Even, I think I'm, I misunderstood. I, I played pool with people and I was misunderstood. I was, I was called last week a man of the cloth. Now, th- that there was some reverence in what I was, what I was called. But that man is picturing me as wearing a robe and walking about on holy ground. And I can... I eloquently talk to all of you, and I'm so good, and I'm so right. Look at me. That's his picture of me. I tried to correct him and said, no, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I said, ah, well, well, yeah, you know what I mean, but you're a man of the cloth. Like, misunderstood, like, they don't understand. It's okay. And I would just say for you, embrace it. You will be misunderstood. You will be falsely accused. Well, Paul was, but also we see suffering like Jesus. Not only was he falsely accused, but he experienced some fierce attacks. Verse 30, then 
All the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down. And when they saw the tribune, the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. This false accusation stirred the people so that they would inflict fierce attacks against Paul. And notice the violence of these verses. If you, if you look there, just verse 30 it says that they seized Paul. Right? It's hands upon him, right? Hands around the neck, hands around the arms, grasping him, seizing him, and embracing him. And they, they dragged him out. And, and they were, verse 31 says, they were seeking to They, they stopped beating Paul, is what it says in verse 32. That is, they, they were beating him until the authorities came, and they stopped beating him. So it's so a picture, just physically upon him, grabbing him, taking him, beating him, and only stopping when the authorities are coming by. They're seeking to kill Paul. So just picture the scene. Physically, forcefully removed from the temple area against his will. And it was futile for him to resist because of mob violence. I mean, it certainly would have been a scary thing as they're beating him, seeking to kill him. Here's a picture I found on the internet of people, a guy being beaten by a Hindu crowd. But I picture Paul right there wrapped up in his fetal position, like, like trying to guard himself so as to protect his head and his vital organs. And so they're just pounding on him and wailing upon him. See, they wanted Paul dead and not alive, and they're doing the best they could by beating him. The only problem is they ran out of time because the police were upon him too quickly for them to carry out their plans, like verse 31 says, right? As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And it's it's no accident the soldiers were there so quickly, right? Here's here's a picture of a, a model of the Temple Mount. Um, this is the, the place where the Jews would, would come up to worship. There's Solomon's portico uh, there upon the, the left. There's the, the temple itself with the holy place. And then you got the Holy of Holies behind there where, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is and where the incense and the table of showbread is. So it's a picture of a model. Uh, of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. And you can just see right there's all the temple grounds. Now high above the temple grounds is this place called the Antonia Fortress. Uh, this is, if you will, where the soldiers and centurions were, were headquartered. It was, it was police headquarters. Jo- Josephus describes this fortress with these words. He says, The general appearance of the whole was that of a tower with other towers at the four corners. Three of the turrets were 50 cubits high, while that at the southeast angle rose to 70 cubits and so commanded the view of the whole area of the temple. 70 cubits high, that's uh, over 100 feet tall. Being able to look and see everything's going on. The, the, the Antonia Fortress was very similar to guard towers at a prison, right? Where you, the guards are up there walking, looking down on everything that's happening. And so if there is something happening there in the, in the courtyard, the guards are ready to get upon it. And that's why even they were on it so so quickly. And, and the Roman commander saw that violence, 
could break out or knew that violence could break out and they were high, they could monitor what's happening. If you see in the text, even it says that they ran down to them. Verse 32, that is, they were in the fortress, they saw what's going on, they heard the commotion, and they started running down. Right? Maybe a guard like, problem in cell 3C, problem in cell C3, when they started going down on them. Right? And they're kind of like, right? Everybody was there. When, when I worked at the hospital, um, one of the one of the fun codes, right? There, there were several codes that come across on the intercom. There are good codes and bad codes. Obviously, code blue was really bad. That's when all doctors went. But they had a code pink. And when code pink was uh, called, that meant that there was someone like violent, um, someone unruly, maybe even a, someone trying to take a child from the nursery. And if it said code pink, that means every man in the hospital go to that place. And um, so that was always kind of a fun, exciting time where it doesn't matter what you're doing. You drop your work and it, it being more administrative, I could do that. And, I, and just everybody, all the men were there. And so whenever there's a code pink, I kind of got excited. I wasn't the first one there. I always let the big maintenance guys get there first. But I kind of came in afterwards. There's always this big mob, this big mob of men. And that was going to shut down anything. And that's similar what's, what's happening here is you got the, the police coming in. And these soldiers, I sense, were, were sensing the, the danger and the city stirring. They're up there saying, oh, we might have danger, we might have danger. And then as soon as they, they, they had some danger and they started moving outside of the temple and the gate was shut, then they like, up, up, trouble, trouble, south wing, south wing, let's go. And they took all the policemen and they were ready. And they came quickly enough to prevent the, the death of Paul. And I think it's similar to the, the suffering of Jesus. that He too fierce, faced some fierce attacks. There were several times in his ministry where they, the Jews actually picked up stones ready to, to stone him, to throw them, to, to beat him. And one time in preaching in Nazareth, they sought to throw him off a cliff where they'd then be able to stone him. But he always escaped their grasp. They wanted to have these attacks upon Jesus. But at the arrest of Jesus by the Jews, he did face some fierce attacks and was beaten. Luke twenty two sixty three. they were mocking him as they beat him. And they blindfolded him and kept asking, right, as they struck him, prophesy, who struck you? Right? From another side, they had a crown of thorns upon him, hitting him on the head, burying those thorns deeper into his head. Finally brought before Pilate and delivered over for crucifixion. This was before his trial even. And then after his delivering over to be crucified, he faced fierce attack to the Roman soldiers as well. And they beat him to a pulp. This is what Matthew 27, 28 through 31 says. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then they led him away to crucify him. Of course, his crucifixion was the most fierce attack of all. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans as the most cruel form of punishment to Make anybody die slowly. Hang on a tree, supported by the nails and the flesh, which are painful enough. But the problem is you need to breathe. And you need to lift yourself up to breathe. Eventually, they die of suffocation after many hours of torment and agony. And praise the Lord, Jesus suffered so because his sins upon the cross becomes our life as he was a sacrificial lamb to die in our place. Taking away our sins, right? That's the gospel. It's a good news that we proclaim. Christ suffered. He was raised for a justification. 
And though Paul wasn't taken to the point of suffering to death, he still faced the physical violence of, of the crowd, suffering like, like Jesus did, facing the violent attacks of beating him. And, and they would have beat him to death had the soldiers not come to rescue him in time. Now, for you and for me and for Luke and for other followers of Jesus in Paul's day, we, we may be spared the physical beatings that Paul experienced. Though for some today, particularly in Muslim lands, believers are routinely tortured for their faith. But for us in America, we aren't in too much danger of violent physical attacks, but attacks do come upon us. They come in mocking and, and ridiculing and in some high-profile places, places like with Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado. It comes, he's become the, the target head, if you will. He's become the Apostle Paul for the, the suffering of the, the gay marriage and the LGBT issues. You can go right at him, right, trying to take this man down. Because you take one person down and then all of the artists and cake decorators, photographers will, will fall. And he refused to create a cake of a combination of two colors designed to celebrate the gender transition of Autumn Scardina, an attorney who promptly sued him. She didn't come really wanting this cake. She, wanted, she came so that he would deny so that he, she could sue so as to attack then all the rest of the cake makers and artists. Case went to the Supreme Court and he was declared innocent. But he was targeted. And just like Paul was targeted, in our day, we may be targeted as well, but it may be smaller ways. Right? It may not make the news. It will probably never come to blows, yet nevertheless, right there, there are attacks from non-believers who hate the gospel upon all of us. If they hated Jesus, they will hate you. If they hate our gospel, they will hate the messenger. So be willing to suffer, right? The, the cause of Christ is worth it. It's worth any attacks that come. Remember when the, the, the apostles were attacked? It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they were beaten with rods, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And you too, right, when, when attacks come, you'd be like, it just vindicates you, right? And when you respond rightly and trusting yourself to God as Jesus did, it'd be a strength that God gives. That's why we read in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, when Paul said, right, suffer, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's going to be the power of God that helps you through any sufferings that you have, <clears throat> attacks that come upon you. Well, finally, we're going to look this morning at frivolous arrest. And, and here it's just sort of like they, they didn't even know what was going on, but they arrested Paul anyway. So just because of the culture of the day, it was the Paul that faced the issue so we read of his arrest in verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and, and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. <clears throat> and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And here we see the tribune coming and arresting Paul, even though he didn't know who Paul was or what the situation was. I suspect that this is a little bit like a policeman. I mean, I don't know a lot, and too bad Armin's not here. I should have called him this week. But this is typically how it is. I've done a ride-along with officers before. Is that They come and they try to figure out the situation, and they ask questions and try to discern what it is best going on. 
and then make an action so as to keep the best peace. And as they came in here, uh, here was the officer, and he just asking questions, trying to figure out what's going on. They're shouting, but he knew that Paul was the problem, so he wanted to just remove Paul out of their midst. And if Paul was out of the midst, there would be peace, and that's what, what he did. If he would take him away, calm would be restored. And, and so that's when we see Paul bound with chains. It's interesting here. That's exactly like Agabus had prophesied in Caesarea. Remember that? Acts chapter 21 and verse 11. Agabus, this prophet, came down and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I think that's what happened. At the command of the tribune, to be exact, it could have been the, the Jews themselves who brought the chains and bound Agabus, bound Paul just like Agabus did with the belt. And then, having bound him, they gave him to charge to the tribune. Say, here he is, just like Agabus had prophesied. Now, in many ways, this arrest was for Paul's safety. If he was left to the crowds, he would have been beaten to death. Yet still, it was a, a struggle that the soldiers had even to keep him safe as they, 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 they came around him. Verse 35, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Right? They were still getting at him, and, and, the, and he was bound up. And then they carried him, literally carried him off and away. They were pressing upon Paul, and as they were doing so, they were, they were crying out, away with him, away with him. And I can't, I can't help but to reflect upon what they did with Jesus. Saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What wrong has he done? Crucify him, crucify him. And here was Paul. They didn't even know who Paul was, but they knew he was a problem. They're saying, away with him, away with him. Okay, we're taking him away. We're taking him away. They were done with Paul. They want him taken away and killed, never to come back again. And in some ways, I believe this is sort of like the, the final rejection of the Jews. <clears throat> with all finality, rejecting Paul and the message of his gospel. And perhaps that's why we read at the end of verse 30, and at once the gates were shut. And maybe Luke at that point is sort of winking to us and just saying, they shut the gates, they're done. And here he is away with Paul. They don't want that anymore. They call this a frivolous arrest because the soldiers really didn't understand who Paul was. And remember, when Jesus was attacked and arrested in the garden, they didn't really understand who Jesus was. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they go down, and they're like, who are you arresting? And uh, they were like, who is this? And, and Judas said, okay, well, it's the one that I kiss. Like, they didn't know Jesus even by sight. And he went, and he, he kissed him. And, then, and even they said, who are you looking for? He said, Jesus. He said, I am he. And they fell down like they didn't understand who he was. But finally, they took him away, and Pontius Pilate didn't even really know who he was. Herod sort of heard about him, was interested in meeting him, but didn't really know who he was. So this, this, but apparently, like this troublemaker was pretty unknown to the Jews and unknown to this tribune as well. It was a, a frivolous arrest, you know. And there, there are many things that come against us as Christians, which people like don't really understand or don't know why. I think a lot of the political correctness that we deal with is a lot of like this frivolous arrest, so as not to offend anybody. Right? We're not going to do this, or we're not going to do that, or, or no prayer here, or no because it's going to offend somebody. Well, how about it offends us because we're not saying it? It's offending us because we're not doing it. There's lots of things that are just frivolous that just because kind of caught in the crossfire of our culture, things that would be better for us and better for the culture, just religion is taken down and taken away. 
and removed, and nobody really knows why. Just a thrust of the, the culture. And then we read verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? He was shocked. He said, do you know Greek? <clears throat> verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian who then recently stirred up a result and led a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And I think here, like you just see how frivolous this was. He didn't even know who he was. I mean, he had thought that he was this Egyptian who had stirred up this revolt. Now, it's interesting, Josephus writes about this Egyptian who came as, a, as an apostor. He was a, claiming to be a prophet. He, he led a band of people from the desert to the Mount of Olives. So all of a sudden, you're there in the Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives is about, I don't know, maybe half a mile from the Temple Mount, um, just kind of down a dip and then up a hill. And so all of a sudden, these Romans, right, they had all these, all these people just line up on the, the Mount of Olives. And, and this Egyptian claimed that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall. And he intended to overtake the Romans and the Antonia Fortress and then become a ruler over the area. And when Felix, the governor, heard about the uprising, he sent his cavalry out and his soldiers killed a number of Jews, took others captives, but the Egyptian and many of his followers escaped. That had stirred some news and they thought maybe this is the same guy coming back. They thought they had him. They thought, oh, he was the troublemaker coming here into the temple. And no, that, that wasn't him. He was wrong. But just all the confusion, he didn't really know. He didn't have an Egyptian. He had a Jew. And then Paul continued with this. He said, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so there's carried away, like four guys have got him. He's carried away. He says, can I speak to the people? We've given him permission. Paul standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there's a great hush. He addressed them in the English, in the Hebrew language, saying, and we'll get this next time. It's the very last, very first time I've ever ended a sermon on a gerund, right? <laughs> saying. But we'll get that next time. And a wonderful, he's going to just share his testimony of the transforming power of God. Here in chapter 22. He's going to say it again in chapter 26. We're going to relive Acts chapter 9 of the testimony of the power of God to change a life. So let's pray. Oh God, I do pray that, um, that we might embrace the sufferings of, of Jesus to the extent that they come upon us. Uh, Father, we are, are thankful in many ways that uh, the, the suffering of Christ doesn't come upon us like it did the Apostle Paul. It doesn't come upon us like it did Jesus and, and yet it comes in smaller ways, in tangential ways, and yet equally as hurtful, O oh God. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that we might suffer for the gospel by the power of God. You would strengthen us through these things. And yet there is, there is something, O oh God, to this. Even as Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Just suffering for the church in a way that Jesus couldn't do. Because he suffered for our sins. And yet there's a way in which through the blood of the martyrs you build the church. And through the suffering of your saints, that's when the church is built. When we stand strong and are, are ready and willing to take upon us the, the wrath and the ire and the hatred of other people. Though being righteous in ourselves and seeking merely to, to live for you. God, that that builds your church. 
And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would build the church upon our suffering rightly as we seek merely to follow and walk in the steps of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our body. And I pray that even today you'd build it up, just not only today as we fellowship together with snacks later and with our small groups this evening. God, in all ways, just work in us, we pray, so we might be strong, we might be strengthened by your power to suffer for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.